Hi, we are in a new episode of the History and Politics podcast and we have a great guest. We have Nolan Gray, which is a contributor of Market Urbanism and a Young Voices Advocate. Hi, Nolan. Hi, thanks for having me. So one of the, probably the issue where I, I started reading you was the, um, when you start writing about moles, it, and it seems like it's a very particular kind of genre because if someone is uh, a little, some time in, in YouTube, it, one founds like a lot of videos about moles and particularly about abandoned moles. And, and it seems that like there are people who have a real fascination for, for these moles because there are people that seem to be touring these abandoned moles and, it's quite strange, but your your piece was a, a really interesting piece. When I I first read from you, it was about the the boom of, of Latin American malls, and, and being from Latin America, I have seen that that kind of boom. And so that's why I was uh, confused when I start to 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 read that in the U.S. The malls were kind of dying. So so how how do you see the the mall phenomenon? Yeah, well, so I was I was living and working in Guatemala for a summer, um, and I just found that every time, almost every time we went out, we would go to a mall. Uh, you know, there'd be malls that had restaurants in them, any kind of store you would go to. You know, like grocery stores were in malls in Guatemala City. Um, so I became super interested in it because it's the complete opposite as in the U.S., where malls basically are all tied to these declining anchor stores like Sears. And J.C. Penney, uh, Bonton, you know all these regional little shops, uh, Dillard's, you know these these firms are by and large going out of business, and they're taking malls kind of with them. And so I think that there's two sort of interesting things here. The first is that there's now this nostalgia for them. I mean, when I was growing up, we would always go to the mall, and it was a place where you would hang out when you were a teenager, um, and we would go over Christmas, and it would just be a total madhouse. And so there's this nostalgia that I think a lot of other people who have had similar experiences feel. And I think another thing that's going on is it's sort of an interest in what's next, you know? These are huge spaces, massive investments that just totally failed in many cases. I mean, some of these malls never thrived. Some of the malls thrived, right, for a period, but many of them never thrived. That's kind of the interesting thing about malls. You know, within five to ten years, they were mostly empty, a lot of them. They were built in the late 80s and 90s, and they just immediately kind of started the slow process of death. Um, so the big question on that end is what's going to happen with these with these malls? What's going to happen with all this land? And in many cases, cities have zoned them in what are kind of mall zones, where the only thing that can be built there is another mall. But the market conditions that killed malls have not changed, and they're probably not going to come back. These are things like the Internet. More and more people are just buying things online. Or if they want to go shop in a physical location, they want to be somewhere attractive like a downtown street. They don't. There's really no place in that middle area for malls. So they need to change the zoning relatively quickly. Um, that's another thing I've written about. Are there malls being used for housing? Well, so it, not so much. The original idea of, by the architect uh, Victor Gruen was that a mall would be sort of like an all-purpose urban center. It would be an urban space for the suburbs. You would drive to it. You would walk around. There would be churches in the mall. There would be apartments in the mall. Um, you would There would be public events in the mall. There would be protests in the mall. So, And then, of course, there would be some retail. And in practice, of course, malls became this exclusively retail thing. Um, 
So the traditional mall never had any residential. And a part of this is zoning. I mean, when cities would zone spaces for malls, they would never, in their right minds, allow for mixtures of uses. Um, as, you know, many of these were built in the 60s, 70s, 80s, when you had this very much sort of conventional, we have to separate the land uses mentality. But what you are seeing is mall-like things that are coming back. Um, sometimes they're called lifestyle centers, uh, where essentially it's a mixture of an open-air mall with some uh, multifamily housing. And uh, but they benefit from creating a space that people actually want to be. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because, I mean, in Latin America, in particular in Peru, where I'm from, it's, it, the malls represented a very curious way because basically the, the year that, 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 the, that the revolutionary Tupacamaru army was the, the last of the, of the far-left militias that were fighting against the state, like Fuel, it, uh, months later, the first mall opened, and it was kind of the triumph of neoliberalism in, in many ways. And, and it's it is very curious because if I'm not wrong, uh, Victor Gruyin was was a socialist, the, the inventor of the mall. That, that's correct. Yeah, I'm fairly I'm fairly certain that, that you're right about that. Yeah, it's it's very curious, but but it represented a, a great shift, I guess, in the mentality of, and and I have influenced a lot of Peruvian society because. As you mentioned, uh, Latin American cities, uh, with some exceptions, are, are not that safe. And malls are, to a large degree, safer because they have private security in a relatively more developed ways than, than other kind of, uh, of private spaces. So in that regard, I mean, malls are still growing. And, and it's and I think that there is still a... Um, IKEA is going to to come finally to 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 South America this this next years, and yeah, I mean it's it's expanding in a in a very uh, rapid way. And so so the other topic that I went wanted to to discuss was the the issue that that all, a lot of people talk that is the Jimbi, the Jess in Buyer movement, which is. Um, a very complex discussion discussion over over gentrification and it's uh, a really a, a process that I think it's particularly in the US also I guess it happens in many ways in different countries yeah well that's I mean just to put a bow on that last point I think that's the main appeal in a place like Guatemala of a mall is that it's a safe space um, when we would visit the malls you know there would be multiple armed guards everywhere, um, which is not something you would see in an American mall. And so I think that both shoppers and store owners like the safety of a mall. Um, but, but to your point about the Yimby movement, it's been kind of fascinating because historically land use regulation has been heavily determined by the people who show up at the meetings and say they really don't want this or they really don't want that. And so you've had this sort of reaction to this where people are actually coming out to public meetings and saying, no, I want more housing in my community. And, of course, this started in the Bay Area of California, where housing costs have basically reached crisis levels. Um, and they've actually had a few successes. You know, they're, they're changing the culture there. The most recently elected mayor, London Breed, uh, is very enthusiastic about building more housing, 
which is fantastic. Um, and the movement's spreading. They've been working on state-level preemption, which would basically just take away certain powers from uh, misbehaving local governments, which would be great. Didn't get it passed. It was a big political fight, but it's coming back. And uh, it's been interesting to be a part of it. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting because, I mean, the um, in, in Latin America, it's not as, as huge as this, this issue because there, there are not that much... Uh, housing regulations, as uh, at least in in the, in the large majority of countries, they are not that that hard. The housing regulations. So basically, if someone wants to to build a home and there is an empty space, you could put the brickles and and you can construct a home. So so that's not necessarily the, the same problem. But there have been areas like like that people accuse of gentrification. That it's also a lot of the topic and it's, it's very curious because like it's it's the same way that it's accused in, in the in the US like of hipsters moving in and try to 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 move out like more working class families of some some place I, I think that that plays also in the US so it's something oh yes it's huge it's it's huge you know it's interesting because there's sort of two parallel sort of forces at play to some extent for most of history, what dominated was the people wanted to keep out lower-income people from moving into their neighborhood. Um, and so we get things like single-family zoning. We get things like uh, bans on, you know, apartment buildings in certain parts of town. And now sort of the focus, I think, for historical reasons, has shifted to uh, the concerns of wealthy people moving into low-income areas. Uh, so it's kind of a topsy-turvy situation, and it's fascinating to read the history. Um, but there are serious concerns that um, not a lot of new housing is being built, and more and more people uh, want to live in cities. And so the price of apartments and houses is being bid up. And of course, people who are lower income, if they don't own their homes, uh, they're going to get outbid and their landlord's going to raise the rent. And so there's a big kind of conversation about how to address this. Uh, historically, the way to do it has been rent control. Um, which basically locks in the rent. The problem with rent control is that uh, basically landlords have no incentive to maintain the properties. Uh, developers have no incentive to build any more uh, housing. Uh, existing housing becomes much worse. Uh, people can't easily move because they're kind of locked into their units. Uh, more people can't move to the city because there's no new supply uh, being added or the existing supply is so low quality. And we saw this uh, through the second half of the 20th century. Rent control was an element and why there was so much disinvestment in cities. So the alternative to that sort of approach is a lot of things, but the, the primary initiative has to be building more housing, building a lot more housing, more multifamily housing where people want to live. And if you do this, if you add housing where people currently want to live in the existing nice areas, um, you tame gentrification to some extent. Because people don't move into low-income areas necessarily because they want to. I mean, some people do. The main reason that a lot of people are forced to move into low-income areas is because they can't find affordable housing in an area that might already be higher middle income, the area where they want to live. Um, so if you create enough housing in those areas, you're going to really cut back on gentrification. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's an interesting topic because I, I, it was very, very funny because I, I have heard some, some of this 
issues also happen in Stockholm, and it's it, for curious that that it could sound like there are residential areas where there is like, um, um, like some sort of rent control, and and so people there are like by pay a very cheap kind of rent, and and compared to 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 what the normal person will will pay in a more working class area. So it's it's really strange. And I guess there there are cases of relatively famous people who have lived in rent control apartments. If I'm not wrong, in, in the US, uh, there was a filmmaker that for a while lived there. So, so it's sometimes it's not that it's someone who is going to be homeless next, but but some people that, that abuse the system also in some ways. It's, it's a very sloppy way to help people who need help affording housing. I mean, there's no doubt to anybody's mind that there are certain parts of the population that need a little bit of help. And you're probably going to have to, either through the community or through the government, find a way to subsidize their rents and build housing uh, that's affordable to those people. No doubt. Rent control is just a very sloppy way to do that because, like you said, middle and higher income people can often kind of get in on this. Or another way that, that cities will try to regulate rents is they'll say, we're going to have uh, subsidized artist housing because, you know, artists are poor and they need our help. Um, and what ends up happening, as has happened in New York, is the quote-unquote artists who move into these neighborhoods are architects or they're interior designers or they're graphic designers. These are people who make a lot more money than I do uh, or uh, many New Yorkers do. Uh, but they're getting heavily subsidized rent. Um, and so it's just kind of an issue of it, it's, there are certain circumstances where you're going to have to help people, but you really got to get it right. And you want, on top of all this, a functioning market. You want there to be so much housing that most people can get housing that's affordable. And then for the tiny number of people who still need help, there's plenty of help for them. Do you think that, that race plays a role in the gentrification discussion? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I live in uh, central Harlem right now. And, you know, Harlem is one of these communities where it's historically black. It's the center of black culture. A lot of great musicians, artists, writers have come out of Harlem. Um, what you're seeing right now is there's so much housing crunch in Manhattan uh, over the last, you know, two decades since the city's really turned around that more and more uh, people are higher-income people are moving into a place like Harlem. Now, originally, a lot of the people who were moving into Harlem were actually middle- and upper-class African-Americans. Um, so they were kind of moving here. Uh, but now, of course, what you have is more uh, upper-income whites moving in. And so there's some sort of tension about, you know, the spirit or the culture of the neighborhood being at risk. And that's a tough conversation, you know? I mean... On the one hand, it makes total sense that you want to preserve really magical, great places. On the other hand, city neighborhoods change. You know, it's a really hard balance to strike. I think the one thing that everyone should be able to agree on is, well, if you're worried that way too many people are being forced into Harlem, let's say, or another gentrifying um, uh, neighborhood with a particular ethnic or, or sort of historical racial culture, um, then build more housing in the areas uh, where those people might potentially want to live but are not able to live because they're displaced. Yeah, I think that a very curious case, I guess, as far as I read, 
is uh, Portland because Portland is, I think, the only largest metropolitan, lar relatively large metropolitan area, which is becoming more wide. And, uh, and for even if this school sounds like funny, some people accuse Portlandia of being like responsible of this, like like why hipsters want to to move to to Portland, and, and it's very curious uh -huh. that the kind of. Yeah, well, you know, Oregon's got a weird history, too, because they didn't allow non-whites to settle in Oregon for, you know, I don't know, some extended amount of time. So they have a really uh, kind of nasty history with that. But, you know, what you're seeing, especially with places like Portland, but also, uh, well, Portland, a lot of what's happening, too, is people are priced out of San Francisco, and they're having to move to Portland. And they're moving to Portland, they're moving to Seattle, they're moving to Boise, Idaho, they're moving to Las Vegas, and they're driving up housing costs in all these different places. Um, but what you are seeing in places like California is is a lot of low-income uh, people of color, right, uh, Hispanic migrants, uh, uh, you know, African-Americans. They're being priced out of a place like California, and so you're actually seeing a lot of those people move to places like Texas uh, and Nevada, um, which is troubling in a way. I mean, it's... It'd be one thing if the people were moving to opportunity, but, you know, these people are saying, I am priced out of this area where I want to live, so I have to live somewhere else. You know, it's it's definitely, uh, it's it's a, it's a national crisis in that respect. Yeah, it's, it's I guess, a, um, a complex issue that, that is still going to be dealing with, um, at least for the next year. So... To, to move uh, to another topic, the, the issue that your your last piece about uh, the trailer parks being an opportunity for for housing. So how how do you think that this kind of new models for for urbanism could could take on and, and be and, and and could gain um, more attention? Well, I I became I came into the trailer parks, um, you know. I guess growing up in a place like Kentucky, you see a lot of trailer parks. I mean, there are trailer parks all over the country. In many cases, they're hidden, but they're there. Um, and I just became interested in trailer park design uh, because in many cases, they're sort of exempt from subdivision regulations. So the lots are actually really small, much smaller than you would see in a standard uh, site-built subdivision. The streets are quite narrow, almost like a traditional city, no more than you know 18 feet, 20 feet wide. Um, the houses are relatively small, but uh, highly affordable. So I became interested in it from an urban design perspective and also the affordability perspective. Manufactured housing is very cheap, in part because it saves on land. Uh, it sits on these small parcels with the small streets and all that. But in part because it uh, saves on labor costs. You know, these things are centrally crafted in a factory somewhere. It's all streamlined. It's highly efficient, efficient use of materials as opposed to cycle construction, where in many cases you have laborers uh, who have to be called in for this specific project. In many cases, they're migrant laborers. They may or may not be fully trained in uh, a variety of tasks that they might be required to do. So there are all these unique organizational challenges that just don't exist with uh, manufactured housing. So it's a fantastic source of affordable housing. It's totally provided by the market, very limited need for subsidies, but it's illegal in most cities. Um, and this gets to some of what we talked about with sort of the broader history of zoning and land use regulation, where a lot of it was designed to keep lower income, which in many cases meant non-white people out of certain parts of town. And so one way to do that was to ban 
or heavily restrict manufactured housing because it was so affordable to low-income migrants. Um, so I make the case that if we're really serious about housing affordability, we should take a new look at these and really consider what restrictions are absolutely necessary for health and safety and what restrictions are probably just designed to keep um, uh, housing costs up and to keep low-income people out of certain areas. Yeah, I mean, there there have been several, like, like looks at the at the future of urbanism in very innovative ways and and one of the most recent that i have seen is the tiny houses which is really interesting there is a a guy from new zealand who goes all over the world showing tiny houses and uh, or, or tiny apartments and and it seems very interesting because particularly for 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 single people it, it could be like uh, um, a great opportunity of having independence and at the same time not necessarily paying that much, uh, particularly when they are at the starter's job. And and but the problem is that in many states, uh, um, they there are regulations that 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 mean that that houses have to be at least of a minimum size that that wouldn't make possible any tiny house literally. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the similar regulations hurt, you know, things like mobile homes. Um, and there's really no justification for a lot of these rules. I mean, you know, I, mean, I guess a charitable interpretation would be some would say, oh, everybody should have a house of a certain size. But when you say everybody should have a house of a certain size and you mandate that, what you're saying is everybody who can't afford a house of this size is not allowed to live in this community, um, which is, you know, a shame. It has a disastrous effect. Yeah, I think tiny houses are actually really interesting. I think they're, like you say, there are probably a lot of people for whom a tiny home is the perfect opportunity. Um, and it's just too bad that uh, many communities uh, ban them or they heavily restrict them. Yeah, it's 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 really sad. I mean, one of the, the issues that, that has probably a lot of interest in, in, in lately is, is the issue of homelessness. Uh, and it's it's really an issue where where there is a, a very complex kind of of discussion because uh, the the issues that could help the the homeless crisis like either tiny homes or 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 mobile homes are are being like like being making more difficult because of, of the restrictions and zoning as you said like that occurs many many times so so this kind of problems just became much bigger and i think probably in california they they are, they seem to to be to become even bigger yeah i mean homelessness is, is um it's a huge issue in california and the west coast in general it's a huge issue uh, in part because the weather is really nice, and so people who maybe are housed are, are, are homeless um, move there. But, but really, what's distressing that you've seen lately is a lot of the people that are homeless now are people who are from those communities, and they've lived there their whole lives. And one bad thing happened to them, and it totally threw them uh, off their course, and they just couldn't handle it, and they were evicted from their home. Um, and... Part of this is part of this broader story of housing costs just going up and up and up and rents just keep rising. People who are barely hanging on can't survive. Um, 
So homelessness is a huge crisis in a place like San Francisco. And the, the peculiar thing, too, I, I, I want to stress this, many of these people have jobs. I mean, they go to work every day, and then they you know go home, and they have to find a shelter in the evening for themselves and their children. Um, and so for them, something like a tiny house or an extremely um, inexpensive uh, small apartment could potentially be a godsend. Uh, but, of course, they're prohibited. And so I think it's going to take two things to really solve this. You're going to have to have near-term spending on this. you got to have more community groups and local governments set up homeless shelters in the near term. But if you don't fix the long-term problem and build enough housing, we're just going to get right back into the same position we were in. Well, I think that that's, that's true. I mean, the... the it's it's needs some action and that action requires some the regulation and and this is it seems the the only workable way to to find a, a solution to to housing problems so i think with this we could we could leave it here i think it has been great talking with you so where do the people can find your your work well i'm a regular contributor to market urbanism uh, I'm also a regular contributor to Strong Towns. You can also see my work on uh, City Lab from time to time. And follow me on Twitter. Uh, M as a Matthew, M Nolan Gray, G R A Y. Um, yeah, so thanks for having me. It's been fun talking to you. Thanks, Nolan. Bye.